Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Thank you, Jerry, for reading the text. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 57. If you spent 30 seconds, just 30 seconds, viewing every item in the Louvre, it would take you 100 days. Now, that's a glorious three months, in my opinion. But I know for others, visiting a museum is, you'd rather do that, or you'd rather have a root canal rather than going to a museum. We talked last week about one of the Louvre's finest pieces, the Mona Lisa, but there's over 5,500 paintings hanging in the walls of the Louvre. There are a lot of rather obscure paintings that are actually very significant in that museum. And as we've been journeying through Luke these last well, last week we, we started looking at some the paintings in the gospel. Some obscure paintings, ones that we don't often see as we journey through the Christmas story. And last week we looked at Mary's cousin Elizabeth. And this morning I want to look at Elizabeth's husband and that is Zachariah. If you remember, this is an elderly couple. Zachariah is a priest. It just so happened once in a lifetime, really, opportunity to offer up the, the sentence in the, in the temple. And he has been called. He met Gabriel, who told him that he and Elizabeth would have a child. And Zachariah, of course, had trouble believing that. And so what did the angel do? Uh, said, well, let me give you an illustration and you will be the object lesson. <laughs> and so, uh, defying all odds and breaching the impossible, God fulfills his promise to Zechariah. And that's where we are in chapter 1, verse 57. As we go to the text, Father, we come to you. We thank you for your word. Today we're going to observe Zechariah's song, the Benedictus. As he rehearses the Old Testament and how you keep your promises and the salvation that has come in this one called Jesus. Guide us as we go to the text. Thank you for this time together around the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, 157, let's look what the text states. We're going to first paint the scene a little bit before we get to the portrait. It says, time came for Elizabeth to have her baby. The nine months have ended, right? Six months in, she saw Mary, and now we're here. And she gave birth to a son. The baby blue balloons, the pastel vases with the flowers in them, you can just see it all, can't you? This is exciting days. The problem is the friends of Elizabeth and Zachariah, they're all old as well, right? They got rid of their baby stuff a long time ago. So it's all probably brand new. Goodwill already took that stuff way before. But here we are celebrating what God has promised. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown, and I love this, great mercy to her. Watch this. We're going to see this term a few times in this text. And they rejoiced with her. It is one party, right? Great time of celebration. It said on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. This was typical. You would gather a minimum of 10 people around. They would circumcise and name the child on this event. And so here we are. They wanted, they, they wanted to name him. Who's they? I, I love this. Uh, it's, it's the neighbors and the relatives in verse 58. It's Aunt Mabel. Right? It's Uncle Herschel. No, 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 no. 
we got a name picked out already for you, right? And they wanted him to be named Zechariah after his father. But his mother replied, no. And it's emphatic in the Greek. Absolutely not. He must be named John. <laughs> they said to her, but none of your relatives bear this name. So they made signs to the father's, the baby's father inquiring what he wanted to name his son. Which tells us not only could he not speak, he could not hear. And it says he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately Zachariah's mouth was opened, his tongue released, and he spoke, blessing God. Their neighbors were filled with fear. And throughout the entire hill country of Judea, all these things were talked about. All who heard these things kept them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the Lord's hand was indeed with him. And then we'll get to the next portion. Zechariah will ask, answer the question that the crowd asked, Who is this child? But let's go back and look a little bit at this text. Notice the crowd's response in verse 58 upon hearing that Elizabeth has given birth. They says they've noticed that great mercy. The mercy of the Lord is noted in several places in the first chapter of Luke. It's a loaded term. It speaks of the covenantal love God has for his people. And that is what is seen here by the crowd. Great mercy to her and they rejoice. Gabriel prophesied, didn't he, to Zechariah, your son will bring great joy. And it's already being fulfilled. Great joy. They rejoiced with her, this joy and gladness. And it's a key concept through Luke's gospel. We talked about this last week. One theologian calls the gospel of Luke the singing gospel because there's a constant echo of praise and joy to God Almighty. Look at verse 59. As we see here, the circumcision occurs, which is according to the Old Testament. And as I mentioned last week, it was customary in this culture to name your child after your father or your grandfather. Uh, look at the crowd's dismay at this. I mean, this is counterculture. They are identified as a community. And to go against the grain is like fingernails across a blackboard. John's name was the fourth most common name in the first century for a Jewish male. But that didn't matter. Uh, the reason we're calling him John is it was prophesied that that's what you will name him, meaning the Lord is gracious. And so the crowd turns to Zechariah. This is a patriarch society, right? So they're hoping to trump Elizabeth's decision. Elizabeth says it's, it's going to be John. And so they turn to Zechariah and say, you know, I think your wife is incorrect. You certainly want him to mean little Zachy, correct? And even he and, and his response is also emphatic, just like hers. This idea that, no, 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 no. <laughs> we don't want any other problems. I can't speak, I can't hear. John is a child's name, All right? You get the idea. But also an understanding, no, this is what God is doing. God is moving and we want to be obedient. After all, they were known as righteous and devout, weren't they, earlier on in chapter 1 of this gospel. But look at the response. And we're going to get to Zachariah's song or hymn or prophecy in, later in this chapter. So hang on, hang in there. But I want you to see the, the response of, of Zachariah's naming the child. First of all, it tells us in verse 63, they were amazed. Why? 
That's, that's the same term used of when Jesus cast out the demons. The crowd was amazed. In an article by Carl Kuhn, a New Testament scholar, he argues what Elizabeth and Zechariah are doing is granting their newborn son an identity that is not to be seen primarily in terms of parentage or kin. They are disassociating John from themselves and honoring the revelation that the significance that transcends the blessing his birth has brought to them. In their cultural context, and especially in light of their particular circumstances, this act of naming is extraordinary. I mean, think about it. The crowd's amazement, that wasn't used when Zechariah came out of the temple and couldn't speak. The crowd wasn't amazed when this elderly woman gave birth to a child. What amazes them? <laughs> that the name is John. That is what's so shocking. And we kind of pass over that. But it's so key here. The crowd is amazed. Notice the next statement of that occurs. And it says, Zechariah blesses God. Nine months, he hasn't been able to speak. And the first words out of his mouth is to bless the Lord. He doesn't blame the Lord. He doesn't cry foul and declare that, well, yeah, we might name him John, but his middle name will be Zechariah. You know, there's, there's no negotiation. The author of Disciplines of a Godly Man, Kent Hughes, writes, the height of devotion is reached when reverence and contemplation produce passionate worship. When in turn it breaks forth in thanksgiving and praise and word and song. Zach has had nine months to reflect on what God is doing. He's watched Elizabeth grow great with child. And then he's seen his child born. And eight days to contemplate, I am going to name my child John. <laughs> Why? Because this is what God is doing. And in, in, in many ways, Zechariah and Elizabeth take the reader's eyes directly to the Lord as they walk in obedience to him. And the third thing that we see that results from the naming of the child is it says the neighbors were filled with fear. And it states they recognized that the Lord's hand was on him. Did you catch that in the text? This idea seen there at the verse 66 that the Lord's hand is on him indicates God's provision, God's power. It's a, it's a phrase used throughout the Old Testament. It's used of creation. It's used of the Exodus. It's used of when God defeats their enemies and delivers them. And so even throughout ancient art in the first few centuries of, of this, this time frame, the, the hand is seen in, in artwork to indicate God is providing. God goes forth. And so here we have this idea, God's hand is on John. It's clear. God is working. These irregularities that are surrounding the pregnancy of the naming of the child clearly demonstrate God's hand is evident. There's no missing it, Right? What will this child be? Zechariah will answer, but it's clear his name is John. God is gracious. 
Zechariah then, in verses 67 through 79, breaks out in song. The first word in Latin is Benedictus, and that's where we get the phrase, the Benedictus, for the title of the hymn. But what I want you to watch as we journey through this, the palette is rich in this painting with Old Testament imagery. There's over 20 Old Testament allusions that Zach will, will bring out, Zechariah will bring forth in demonstrating this is the fulfillment of what we have waited for. This is what we have longed for. Let's look at the text. And this, is, this can be deep, so just bear with us as we move along. But the first thing he does in his hymn or his prophecy is he highlights salvation and identifies it. Notice he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's a standard way to, to speak to the Lord. In fact, three of books within the Psalter all indicate this line, blessed be the one. It's a hymn of praise, of exaltation, because he, God, has come to help and has redeemed his people, he states. He goes on to state in verse 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. I want you to watch the references to salvation, to redemption. They are key in Luke's gospel. We'll come back to that. And he has spoken through the mouth of his holy prophets from long ago. This is not a coincidence. God has been orchestrating the events to bring us to this moment. And that's what Zechariah is highlighting. The blessing that he uses in the very beginning echoes 1 Corinthians 1, which is in the context of the Davidic heir to the throne. Notice he says, because he has come to help, your English version may have, he came, he's visited us. The idea that he, he's tabernacled here. He's dwelling among us. And he says he's raised up a horn of salvation. That's an unusual phrase, isn't it? What does he mean by a horn of salvation? Horn is of the oxen were used to demonstrate power and authority. Defeat over one's enemy. The phrase was used frequently to depict a, a, a powerful regal figure. Often indicative of King David and his descendants. It carries messianic overtones. Let me just give you a couple texts. If you want to write these down, Psalm 132 is one of these. It states, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, the Lord says to David, I will set on a throne. Now listen to what the psalm states. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. As Zechariah states this horn of salvation, I have no doubt that he is thinking back to texts such as Psalm 132. Another one is Ezekiel 29, where it says, On that day I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel. I will open your lips among them, and they will know that I am your Lord. A Jewish writing, rabbinic writing, that most likely goes back to the first century in the 15th benediction, it states, May God spring up quickly the branch of David and exalt his horn for your salvation. Blessed are you, Lord, when you spring up this horn of salvation. 
And Zechariah, as he is reflected in nine months of what God has been doing, he says, the Davidic king is here. What we have longed for. He's not referring to his son, because he knows his son is the one who will introduce the world to the horn of salvation. And, and, and the, the idea of salvation here is key, as I said in Luke's gospel. In fact, the term occurs seven times in Luke. It's absent in Matthew and in Mark. Reference to Jesus as Savior, you won't find that in Matthew and Mark's gospels, but it is several times repeated in Luke's gospel. We're going to talk more when we journey through Luke's gospel starting in January, but Luke is pinning his gospel to demonstrate to the world that we have a Savior. And so he highlights in the nativity scene, Zachariah's song, Zachariah who's come to understand, no, 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 this is the salvation we have longed for, the one that is descendant of David. And so he can say in verse 70, he spoke it through the mouth of his prophets from long ago, this salvation, this one of deliverance. Where does he get this idea? 2 Samuel 7, the promise God made to David. When he said to King David, your descendants will continually reign on the throne and I will establish your reign forever. Think about this. For years, God has apparently been silent. The Old Testament closes. We have some of the exiles, 43,000 and some come back to Israel. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. But where's the Davidic king? Where's, where's the promises that have been made? Where is all of this? And Zechariah goes, <laughs> we're here. This is what we've longed for. And notice the salvation. He gives several reasons for this salvation. Notice what he says in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Drawn from the Psalms, Zacharias speaks to both spiritual and political rescue. The Davidic covenant, that promise God made to David back in 2 Samuel, that the Messiah from his lineage will come and, and throw off the yoke of oppression. When you see that little baby lying in a manger, we got a king, a king that has come. And you say, well, where did that happen in his first 33 years on this globe? If I recall, he died on a cross. Yes, because he's going to come back someday and fulfill those promises to their fullest as he comes back as the Davidic king to reign on the throne. And at this moment, Zechariah is looking and saying, this is the beginning as he prophesies. Every main verb in this hymn is in future tense. He's saying, this is what we have come to see. This is what we have longed for here, this deliverance. He's also stated, notice what he highlights here in verse 72. He, that is the Lord, has done this to show mercy. There it is again. We saw it in Mary's Magnificat in her song. We saw it at the crowd as they saw that Elizabeth had given birth. And he comes back to it again to our ancestors Similar to Mary and Zacchaeus, they cannot help but refer to, to Zechariah, refer to what God is doing here and to our ancestors. Micah 7, if you want another text from the Old Testament, 
Micah 7.20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and unswerving loyalty to Abraham as you have sworn to our ancestors from the days of old. Zechariah is taking all these colors from the Old Testament as he's, as he's uh, delivering this painting and he's saying, look how this is all coming to fruition. Text from 2 Samuel, text from the Psalms, text from Micah. And he's saying, God has showed mercy to us. And also, notice what he states, the oath that he swore to our Abraham to cause us to remember this oath he grants, that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies may serve him without fear. This call for salvation is not only to show mercy, not only to deliver, but it's also a call to remember God keeps his promises. Exodus 2, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Zechariah not only refers to a promise that God made to David, but he also refers to a promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, your descendants will be so numerous, they'll be impossible to count. And those that bless you, I will bless. And those that curse you, I will curse. And I will give you land. That promise that's been given to Abraham has not been spiritualized in the church. It's yet to be fulfilled. And, and Zechariah is seeing this and he's saying, look, the promises that he made to Abraham, they're coming to fruition. This is what God has declared to us. And this is why he says in verse 74, we've been rescued. God is delivering us. If you know anything about Jewish history in the Intertestament period, it's been one of great turbulence. They have longed to throw off the yoke of, of their oppressors, of the Greeks, now the Romans, to go back to the time of David when they could reign their, and control their own land. The purpose of divine deliverance was so that they could worship the Lord. That's what Joshua states. So, a side note, of course, is has worship been your response to God's hand of deliverance in your own life? Will we learn from this recent pandemic to bend our knee before a holy God? We as a country, a God that can disseminate or destroy the globe as easily as he can created it, what have we learned about God's provisions? Zacharias had nine months to rehearse. This is the God that we serve. Undoubtedly, he spent quite a bit of time studying after what Gabriel's revealed. Oh, he knows the Old Testament. He's a well-trained priest. But going back and looking at the promises that God has made in the Old Testament... Many prayers have been raised in life's darkest moments, but what becomes of those prayers of commitment and rededication? Zechariah blesses the Lord. He exalts his name and he says, look what God has done. And then you would expect the proud papa to talk about his son. And that's what he does here in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. That phrase is not found in the Old Testament. It is found in Jewish intertestament writings, the prophet of the Most High. Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. 
John is the, the bridge between the old and the new. John delivers what the Old Testament looked to and says, this is the one, this is the Christ. And so he bridges the gap to this one called Jesus. But he's, and Zechariah says, you are the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord. Remember what Gabriel stated? He will be the one that introduces the Messiah. He is the forerunner. Malachi stated there'll be a forerunner to the Messiah. And on the lips of John and throughout all four gospels, we see Isaiah 40, make straight the path, clean the way, prepare your hearts for the one who's coming, which is Jesus. And so we see two things here. The prophet of the most high will prepare the way for the Lord. And then John will deliver a message of salvation. Notice what the text says in verse 77, to give his people knowledge of salvation. John's message as observed in his baptisms will call for repentance. Will call for hearts that prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. That's John. This is his child. This is why Zechariah can note, ah, salvation has come because my son is the forerunner. And I would argue without a forerunner, you cannot have a Messiah. There has to be one who introduces according to Malachi, and that is John. Then he says, verse 78, because of our God, tender mercy, the dawn will break upon us from on high. He moves to his son, John, and he moves to Jesus. He says, this is the one to give light to those who sit in darkness. We're going to look at this further next week as we look at the man named Simeon, a rather obscure fellow as well in the Christmas story, but plays a key role. And then on the last, on December the 27th, we'll look at Anna in the temple. But here he says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow to guide our feet into the way of peace. Light breaking into the darkness should remind you of another Old Testament text, Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, the light has shone. And notice what the text says, they will rejoice with great joy. No wonder Luke highlights joy throughout his narrative because this entire painting that Luke is, is working on or his gallery, you might say, has joy woven throughout this book. And the, the idea of salvation, it's key throughout the book. And these themes come crashing through in Zechariah's song as he says, this is the one who God in his, and notice tender mercy, it's the third time that that term occurs, the dawn will break from us on high. It seems a little unusual to state that, but it's going back again to Isaiah, this, this light that has come, that has broke through the darkness that we have seen. John, think of John 1, right? The light of the world that came. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Our world desperately needs the light. It seems like the doom of Mordor has hovered over us for several months. We need the light of the world to come through. And Jesus broke through that darkness when he came. 
And it says, the dawn will break from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. And I love this, to guide our feet, watch this, into the way of peace. Shalom. <laughs> this speaks of, of well-being in the Old Testament. And Luke will constantly refer to salvation in terms of peace. You'll see this in numerous occasions. In fact, 14 times the term peace occurs in Luke's narrative. One scholar says the apex of biblical Israel's hope for peace is reached in prophetic visions which transcend the horizon of human experience. Without John coming, without Jesus, the peace is fleeting. Without God intervening time and space and dwelling among us, there's no peace. And peace, how, what is this peace? Well, I think it's found in verse 75. It's so that we can be rescued, that we can serve him without fear, and in verse 75, walk in holiness and righteousness. That's peace. This morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, oh, you know a lot about Jesus. But if I were to ask you, if you were to die today, why should the Lord allow you into heaven? What is your response? I've been a good boy. I give a lot of Christmas gifts. <laughs> or it's, no, I have peace. Because I've come to recognize that Christ's death on the cross paid the price for my sin, and I place my faith and trust in him. That's the peace that comes and the peace that we can have fellowship with God Almighty. Think about this, right? The idea that unlike Zechariah, who had only one chance in a lifetime to enter the Holy of Holies, the holy place, we can enter the Holy of Holies as children of God, dwelling, the Spirit dwelling within us. Well, Zechariah's song certainly alludes and brings forth the Old Testament and demonstrates the fulfillment of God's promise in salvation. But what are some principles for us in our own lives? There are three in your notes. The first of these is we must not lose sight of the merciful hand of the Lord in our lives. There's nothing special about Zechariah. <laughs> he wasn't even a member of the Sanhedrin the Jewish ruling body. Well, at least we don't think so. There's, there, there's nothing prestigious about him. He didn't leave us any books that he wrote. And Elizabeth, she seems to be feather, rather ordinary as well. Priest's daughter, that's nice, but they live in a small village in the Judean hills. And yet these ordinary people, because they are willing to walk in obedience, are used in an extraordinary way. <laughs> The Benedictus, Zachariah's hymn, highlights what God has done for us, doesn't it? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, Every time you draw your breath, you inhale mercy. <laughs> Is that right? That you're sitting here today in your right mind, though we could debate that, right? No. In your right mind, being able to listen to his sermon is God's mercy that we have one another and an opportunity to worship with the body of believers is God's mercy. The gifts God has showered upon us could never fit under any Christmas tree. 
and they're not just confined to December the 25th, are they? <laughs> His mercy is both intensely personal and immensely practical. As noted by Chuck Swindoll, he says, when I... <clears throat> Excuse me, when I'm treated unfairly, God's mercy relieves my bitterness. When I grieve over loss, his mercy is what relieves my pain, my anger, and denial. When I struggle with disability, his mercy relieves my self-pity. When I endure physical pain, his mercy relieves my hopelessness. And when I deal with being sinful, it's his mercy that relieves my guilt. It's intensely personal and immensely practical. The Christian story is another reminder that our God is merciful. The truthfulness of God, the second point in your notes here of application, is that the truthfulness of God's word and our obedience to it must not be shaped or dictated by our personal experiences, our feelings, or our culture. While Zechariah first questioned and doubted the angel's declaration, and that got him into hot water, he had nine months to figure out what steps he would take after the child was born. Would he sulk? <laughs> Continue to doubt? Wonder why God didn't act when Zechariah was a lot younger so he could enjoy his years of raising little Johnny? He could have said, this isn't right. Lord, this, this doesn't feel right. I, this is, it's not my experience. No. Instead, as is obvious from Zechariah's song, he had nine months to spend time in the scriptures rehearsing the promises of the Lord and claiming these truths. Even in the difficulties of life, the sufferings, innuendos, accusations you might be facing, we act in faith because God's word is without error, isn't it? The Christmas story is another reminder that God's word is true. And just look at Zechariah's song. He goes back thousands of years. He goes back to the promise that God made to David. He goes further back to the oath God made to Abraham. He says, look at this. It has all come to fruition. God's word is true. And you can just see, no wonder he breaks out in song, Zechariah does. He goes, look at our God. This is awesome. Don't forget it. God's word is true. And when the times come and you've had bad pizza the night before or things don't seem to be working just as you hoped and you're going, mm, this is what feels right to me, remove that from your vocabulary. <laughs> be very careful. Because at the end of the day, if, if you're basing your theology on how you feel or what you experience, only look in the mirror because there is your God. The truthfulness of God's word calls for us to obey. And notice that's why it says that this oath that he has sworn is to allow us to serve him without fear in righteousness and in holiness. And third, even in times when God seems distant and no word or direction from the Lord seems to be forthcoming, we must remember that he has not forsaken us. The genealogy list in Matthew 1 is very intriguing. I know we're not in Matthew, but if you, if you look at that genealogy, it starts off with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And as you move through, you find women mentioned, which was not, that was just atypical in a Jewish genealogy. It was foreign. Why? What is Matthew doing? He is retelling the story of Israel and the life of Jesus. He is the fulfillment. And Zechariah does somewhat the same thing with his song as he rehearses how God has maneuvered throughout history to bring us to this point, this point of a little town called Bethlehem, a baby being lying in a manger. The Lord has not forsaken his people. And you may feel that today. You may not... uh, love this pandemic or the election outcome or whatever the situation might be and you're saying, Lord, where are you in all of this? He has not forsaken us. Remember taking your kid to their first birthday party? I remember doing that with our daughter. The parents all hang out in the other room. We weren't about to leave that house. I'm watching my kid nonstop, making sure everything is all right. And the the best thing is is a daddy is to watch your child turn around on occasion just to make sure you're still there, right? The Lord's still there. He hasn't dropped us off. He's not the old man who's wound the clock and hopes that everything turns out okay or that, you know, I don't know what might happen here, but we hope it's it's what transpires. No, Paul says in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Christmas story is another reminder, not only that God is merciful, not only that his word is true, but as we've seen in this painting today, nestled in the pages of the Luke's narrative, God has not forsaken us. It's a reminder that one that is born in Bethlehem is called Emmanuel, God with us, right? Some of you have come into this room. I know you've shared some struggles. You've shared some things that are going on that are hard. Kent Erb lost his sister this week, one of our own, due to COVID. Brad Gilchrist lost his father this week due to COVID. These are hard times. Family, we can't get together because we're all quarantined, wondering what's going to happen. We serve a merciful God. A God who has kept his promises from days of old. And he's made some other promises that his son will return victorious. And now at this time, he says, come to me. Allow me to pierce the darkness of your soul to be the light of this world that we live in. To understand what my mercy entails and that I do not forsake my own. Father, indeed, this has been a rough week for us as a a body of believers. We've had some folks lose loved ones due to COVID. For some, there's tension in the home. It it just keeps growing and mounting because we, we can't do the things we want to do. Christmas doesn't seem the same because Aunt Betsy's not coming for Christmas or whatever the case may be. Lord, may we not lose sight of what this is all about anyways. (laughs) It's to glorify you. 
This song that Zechariah breaks out in, he's not licking his wounds for being silent for nine months. He's rejoicing. He's blessing you because why? You are a God of mercy. You're a God who keeps his word because it is true. And you're a God who is faithful, never leaving us. And so, Lord, we rest in that. We thank you. Indeed, you are our God. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.